Our scripture lesson tonight comes from Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, we'll start reading in verse 4. Hear now the word of our God. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of our God. The way Paul says that's a little interesting. Thank you so much for your financial support. I didn't really need it. Uh, uh, please don't send any more. Does... Does that sound like an odd way of saying it? I mean, and have you ever re received support letters like that? If you want to understand the way Paul's thinking and what, he, and what he's doing here, um, it, it's perhaps helpful to, actually, Scripture tells us a fair amount about the Philippian church. Paul talks about them to others as well as talking to them. So, actually, if, if you want to see it, it's in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 8 and 9 is one place. He actually talks about them in two different places. But in 2 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9, Paul says that when he ministered in Corinth, which is down, further down the Greek peninsula, so after leaving Macedonia, um, so that's what he's referring to in how sort of they ministered to him after he had left Macedonia. He says, he says to the Corinthians, he says, I robbed other churches. <laughs> That's an interesting way of putting it. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will, will refrain from burdening you in any way. Now, Philippi was the chief church we know of in Macedonia, 
he even calls his support from Philippi, Macedonia, robbery. Now, what does he mean by that? Now, drop back a step further to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he's reflecting on his own apostolic ministry. In 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 3, he explains the way he thinks about this. He says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Or do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Paul starts with the principle of the laborer is worthy of his hire. And he points out this is, this is laid down in the law. Verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? It's actually, it's worth noting, Paul seems to think that this was the point when Moses wrote it. Not just sort of, but even, sort of, is this, what's the, what was the point of this? He says, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, Paul says in verse 12, we have, uh, chapter 1 Corinthians 9, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Here he refers back to the Old Testament, and actually we, we saw some of this in Leviticus, how the priests and Levites were fed through the sacrificial offerings. A, a portion of, of every offering except the burnt offering was given to the priests in order for the priests to have sustenance. So Paul is zealous to defend the principle, the, the right of the pastor to material support, but he also says that he believes his ministry will be more effective if he sets aside this right regarding himself. As he says in chapter, 1 Corinthians 9.15, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground of boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So Paul wants it to be clear to the churches, and he's, he's doing this for the sake of others, that the, the pastors of the churches should be paid. But he, also, but, but he says, but I do not want to be paid. And... Even And then a step further, if you give Paul money, you are sabotaging his reward. So this is what's going on in Philippians. If you give Paul money, you are sabotaging his reward, diminishing his claim to present the gospel free of charge. So when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 that I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you, he's... This 
sort of rebuking the Corinthians for being so selfish. You Corinthians should not be relying on outsiders to pay for the ministry. You should support those who minister to you. Uh, and the rebuke is especially striking because Paul said earlier in Second Corinthians 8 that these Macedonian Christians, the church of Philippi, they're poor. We want you to know, this is First Second Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And again, Philippi is one of, is one of, one of the few Macedonian churches at this time, so they're certainly included here. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their, their abundance of joy, this, remember Philippians, the epistle of rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. In their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So, what the Philippians have done is they have robbed Paul of his boasting they've, they've, by, by giving him money. And, and they, they, they delight in providing for Paul in spite of his, his objections. Indeed, one could say that they have figured out the implications of what Paul taught on giving. Because if Paul gains honor by preaching for free, then they gain honor by supporting his preaching. So in a sense, there's a zero-sum game here going on in the way that, that Paul's talking. So like, I, my honor is diminished because they're giving, but their honor is increased because they have supported me. And so Paul's, Paul's sort of caught in this dilemma of, I you know, want to do this, but on the other hand, they gain honor. And I delight to honor them for it. So it, 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 Paul, Paul's not, he's not really upset with them because, quite frankly, they're understanding what the gospel is. They're seeing what the gospel is, that they are denying themselves, taking up their cross, following Jesus. And so, yes, his, his honor is diminished. But that's what it means for Paul to take up his cross and follow Jesus. Okay, fine. I won't get to. I won't get the honor of preaching for free here, but they get the honor of denying themselves and taking up their cross and following Jesus, and that's a great thing. So, that's a big part of what Paul's doing. You might you might see it as a a friendly battle of honor. Paul wants the honor of preaching without charge. The Philippians want the honor of supporting his preaching. Paul is grateful for the support they give and delights to honor them for it. He brags about them to the Corinthians. But at the same time, he doesn't want to encourage them to keep doing this. Now, I don't know if any of you have experience with honor-based cultures. You have to be careful in honor-based cultures. If you say to your host, like for instance when I was in Eritrea, I was warned ahead of time so I never did this, but I've been told, if you say to your host, ah, what a lovely picture on their wall. Probably the next day you'll find it at your front door. If you are someone important to them, someone that they honor, then if you make a hint that you like something, they will make it happen even if they can't afford it. That's 
the way honor works. You honor those. Uh, now, I mean, it's, it's worth noting our culture doesn't think much about honor. We also don't think much about shame. We, we got screwed up ideas of both. But, but this is where a, like a, a pastor friend of mine was, was visiting a, a, in a church with a, an honor culture. And after the service, they had to stack the chairs. So as they were, as he was, he was talking with the, another the, the senior pastor, and, and and he just began to help because you know when that's what he does, he stacks chairs. I mean, it's easy enough. The church had a couple of uh, young associate pastors, and as soon as they saw the visiting pastor stacking chairs, they started moving really quick, stacking two chairs for every chair that he stacked. And he he was busy talking with the senior pastor, didn't really notice what was going on. And finally, the senior, senior pastor pulled him away and was like, if you keep stacking chairs, you'll create a disaster because everyone else will see the associate pastor stacking chairs and then they'll feel obligated to do even more. And so it'll, it'll, it'll just wind up becoming an, an, a, a sort of a chaos of honor, because, which you, know, you, you might argue, maybe that's going a little overboard. But you also have to understand the culture you live in. And Paul understands the culture he lives in. And so he's trying to figure out, how do I thank the Philippians for their gift without creating a sense of further obligation? So if he just says, thank you for your gift, the Philippians will hear, please send another one. And that's not what he's trying to say. So that's where, now, this is, this is, this is one place where sort of our culture is different. And so oftentimes the... You know, recognizing that in our culture, sort of when somebody says, sort of pra- praises you for something, usually the best way to do it, respond is just to say thank you, because that then puts an end to this. Okay. You've all seen the self-deprecating person who tries to sort of, oh no, well, what winds up happening? Then the person feels like, oh, I gotta say more about how, how no, you really were. Other cultures, I've, I've been told, you know, sort of like somebody praise, praises your child. Ah, oh, what a lovely child. Oh, but the child, you know, my, but you have to point to what, what's one of their defects in order to, in order, in order to, to, end, the, to end the conversation, as it were. All sorts of strange cultures out there, ours included. I mean, strange, talk about a strange culture. But Paul's you know, understanding what's going on with the Philippians, and this is why Paul is saying it in this way to them. Also, Paul begins in verse 10 by bringing together two of his key words in Philippians. Uh, rejoice and think. Now we, we keep seeing this word think, and it gets translated so many different ways in Philippians that you don't realize it's the same word over and over again. But when it says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your thinking for me, your thinking about me. Um, so it's, it's translated concern. That's a perfectly decent translation. But it's the same word Paul's been using, for instance, when he spoke of having the mind of Christ, having the way of thinking of Christ, the concern of Christ. It's the same word he used to address Euodia and Syntyche at the beginning of the, of the chapter, urging them to have the same mind in the Lord. And now he rejoices because the Philippians have revived their thinking, their mind, their concern for him. And he acknowledges, you were indeed thinking about me, concern for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, if he's writing from Rome, as it, as it appears, then he may be referring to his long stay in Palestine when he was imprisoned in Caesarea. When he's, uh, that's a long ways away. They've got, they're never sending anybody that direction, so we'd love, we'd love to help. In, in those days, if, if, if you're in prison, 
your, your food is your own business, your own affair, and you have no way of making money. So if you're in prison and you don't have any friends, you're going to starve to death. Maybe the guards will take pity on you and throw you a scrap from time to time. But honestly, that's going to come out of their own pay. So why would they do that? Um, so you better have friends. And so you were concerned for me. You were thinking about me. I know you were. But you had no opportunity. He's not blaming them for taking so long, and neither does he want them to think that he is in need. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Why is Paul emphasizing his contentment? Well, he's called them to imitate him. To imitate his pursuit of Christ and his pursuit of the, that I may attain to the resurrection. That's, that's the goal. And notice how these verses here in 11, verse 11 and verse 12 here are flanked by references to anxieties and needs. Chapter 4, verse 6, be anxious for nothing. Chapter 4, 19, God will supply all your needs. Paul senses that the Philippians need to hear this. And so he explains to them his own attitude toward material need. Because we all struggle with anxiety. You look around you and you see a world that you cannot control. How do you respond? Many Greek philosophers would have said, you should respond with autarkes, self-sufficiency, independence from external pressure. And Paul says, that's what I found. I've found autarkes. I found self-rule to be a, a woodenly literal way of translating it. You might say, okay, wait a second. This whole epistle, Paul's been emphasizing this common mind, this common way of thinking, this having the mind of Christ, that, and now I have learned the secret of self-rule, of self-sufficiency, of I mean, this is, this is one of the Stoics' favorite words for, I don't need anybody, I don't need anything, I can, I can handle everything all by myself. What's Paul doing? <laughs> I have learned in whatever situation I am to be self-sufficient. Why would Paul, who has been so emphatic on the importance of having the mind of Christ together, choose a word that, in his context, sounds so individualistic? Well, part of it is, if you develop the mind of Christ, that has an effect on you singular. So, that is a relevant point. As you develop the mind of Christ, his mindset of humility and self-sacrifice, you are also more independent in the good sense of relying on him in all things, which then fosters a healthy and joyful interdependence as we lay down our lives for one another. We saw last time how Paul was using all of the, the Greek virtue words about, about excellence and uh, beauty and when he's, whatever's honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellence. All these, these are all Greek words about virtue to point to our heavenly citizenship. And so now he's using self-rule, self-sufficiency, contentment in a similar sort of way. You are to be content. You are to be self-ruled in the sense of not, not 
pulled away by things outside yourself. Because the peace of God rules and guards your hearts and minds. The peace of God that has been established in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying his contentment does not depend on whether he has enough to eat. He has said repeatedly throughout this epistle that he rejoices in all situations. His joy is not diminished by a lack of food. So he's... which. You may, hear, you may hear echoes here, if you're familiar with Stoicism. There are echoes here where he's saying, they saw something, truly, but they didn't see it in Christ, and so they were missing the heart of it. Because this is an eschatological joy that bursts through the tribulations of this life. Because Jesus Christ has endured the cross and has been raised up to glory. And because Messiah Jesus has laid hold of me, I press on to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of me. And, and Paul uses three verbs to describe his progress towards this contentment. Verse 11, I have learned. This is related to the idea of discipleship. It's the idea of training, inquiry, discipline. Contentment does not just arrive. It doesn't just happen. It requires training. It requires growth. It requires practice. And then Paul says in verse 12, I know. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. Because I have learned through this training. I am now in the present possession of this knowledge of how to be content. And I have learned the secret. Now, this verb was used regularly in the Greek world to refer to sort of initiation into the mystery religions. And, and Paul's writing, in a, he's talking to a Roman town. They know, they know what this word means. And so it's, you know, when, if you think about, actually, we, we even... We even use words similarly in English. So, for instance, take the word baptize. Yeah, when you think about, oh, I was baptized, well, you're thinking about, okay, I was initiated into the Christian religion. Of course, the word can be used in other ways. So if we speak, we speak of a baptism of fire in, a, in your work situation, well, um, <laughs> that sounds like, oh, they had a, a, a difficult time at the beginning of their job. They, they were baptized by fire. What are we doing? we're intentionally playing off that parallel. And so Paul here is playing off the parallel. I have learned the secret, or I have been initiated into facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So when he talks about the secret of contentment, um, we're, not, we're not actually talking here about the, sort of the key principle. It's actually, I have been initiated into plenty and hunger abundance and need. So learning the secret of contentment is not some secret principle you need to learn. Rather, it means that you have walked the path of discipleship. I have learned through training and practice in whatever situation I am to be content. Therefore, I know from experience how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In all things and all ways, I have been initiated into plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In other words, you want to know the secret of contentment? 
there's no secret. He's actually kind of making fun of this whole idea of the secret because the secret to contentment is exactly what he's been saying all through Philippians. It's developing the mind of Christ, the humility and self-sacrifice, the way of the cross in every aspect of life. It's why he says in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, part of, part of the challenge here is that we just don't have a word in English to translate this word do. Because the word here means to be strong, mighty, powerful. And what transitive verb in English covers that? Do. I mean, you can say, I power all things through him who strengthens me, except that makes it sound like I'm the source of power. No. Moises Silva does as well as anybody. I am strong enough for all these things through the one who empowers me. Although even he admits the problem is that that winds up turning it passive. I'm strong enough, which misses I'm doing things. So maybe I mightily do all things through the one who empowers me. I am strong to do all things. I do them mightily. Something like that. But he hastens to add that it's only through Christ, the one who empowers me. In other words, what he's saying here is, it's the same thing he said in chapter 2, 12, and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his glory. Here you see again how the mind of Christ includes powerful action. Certainly, there's doctrinal instruction in the mind of Christ. I mean, if we don't know who Jesus is, we're going to miss the whole point. If you don't know that Christ was God come in the flesh, if you don't know that he endured the cross for our salvation, then you won't have the mind of Christ. But the mind of Christ also includes powerful action because this mind that was in Christ Jesus is also now in those who are united to Christ. Which is why Paul sees what they're doing and what they have done as a sharing in this. It was kind of you to share in my trouble. Paul has rejoiced earlier that he shares in the sufferings of Christ, chapter 3, verse 10. And he has rejoiced that they partner, they share in his ministry in chapter 1, verse 5. And now he concludes that they did well to share in his troubles by aiding him. And that reflects his reflections, launches his reflections on their giving. He says, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, and just notice how he puts that. In the beginning of the gospel. Now, of course, for Paul, that had begun much earlier. But for them, in the beginning of the gospel, when the gospel first came to you, when the gospel first began to grow among you, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Their partnership with him in the gospel, their koinonia, their fellowship with him in the gospel is is what he now rejoices in. And he says in verse 16, Even in Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I rejoice that you have gained the honor of, of supporting the gospel in, in, as I preach. In verse 11 he had emphasized that his rejoicing in the gift was not based on his needs. He would be content whether he was hungry or full. 
But he rejoices because of the benefit to the Philippians. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I think sometimes we pull apart material and spiritual blessings as though they're entirely separate things. Much of Jewish thought in Paul's day had connected material and spiritual blessings in the opposite way. In much of Jewish thought, accumulation of material wealth was a sign of spiritual blessing. Paul turns that on its head. Distribution of material wealth results in spiritual blessing. This will wind up becoming a major point in early Christianity. Peter Brown has written a fantastic book on the, 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 uh, the eye, the eye of a, uh, through the eye of the needle, um, where he talks about how in the early church, this idea of the distribution of material wealth results in spiritual blessing was part of what powered the spread of the gospel throughout the Roman and beyond the outside of the Roman world. Paul says that their care for his material needs results in fruit that increases their credit. There's a lot of financial language being used here. It's very similar to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. What's the point of your earthly treasures? The point of your earthly treasure, the point of your material possessions is to be used in helping others. Certainly, taking care of your family, your spouse, your children, your parents, other relatives, all that's important. But in the, in the context of Philippians 4, it's about taking care of the preaching of the gospel, ensuring that the preaching of the gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth. I think of, of, of John Wesley, who, who died with practically nothing left in his pocket because I mean, tremendous sums of money came to him as people would send him money to, to, for the preaching. And, but yet he just kept making sure it kept going out. He, he, he didn't accumulate it for himself. He made sure that it kept going out for the spread of the gospel. And verse 18 makes this even clearer. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, Paul uses the same language in Ephesians 5 when he commands the Ephesians, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Think about that. In Ephesians, Paul calls Christ a fragrant offering and sacrifice. His, what Christ did on the cross is a fragrant offering and sacrifice. In Philippians, he says that the Philippians' offerings are a fragrant offering and sacrifice. What's Paul doing? He's connecting our financial gifts with the cross of Christ. What does he mean? In the Old Testament, the sacrificial system centered on the shedding of blood. Christ is the atoning sacrifice that removes our sin. So it'd be really easy to say that therefore, you know, the sacrificial system is fulfilled in Christ and we don't really have any other sacrifice but Christ. And yet, Paul says that the Philippians' gifts are a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, the, throughout the Old Testament, this fragrant aroma refers to the portion that is burned in the fire. 
So when the Philippians' gifts are referred to as a fragrant aroma, a fragrant offering, this is saying it's a burnt offering. Now, the burnt offering got completely burnt and destroyed in the fire and ascended in the smoke to God. And that's what Paul says. Basically, Paul says, your gifts for the, for the, for the, for the furtherance of the gospel are like the burnt offering. Well, and what did we see throughout Leviticus as what the burnt offering is all about? It's in the burnt offering you're saying, God, we are yours. We are here to worship you. It's, it's the ascension offering where, where we ascend into the presence of God in, in the Old Testament through the smoke. We don't just come through smoke. We come through Jesus' own fragrant offering, his own burnt offering, his own, he is the one in whom we come. And Paul is saying that the, you know, in the Old Testament, the priest, the priest did not receive that portion. God himself did as it was burned in the fire. But the burnt offering is, is the once for all atoning sacrifice has been offered in Jesus, but the economic principles of the, of, of what the Old Testament sacrificial system was doing remain fundamentally similar. And even as the Philippians' gifts are a fragrant offering and sacrifice, it's because they imitate the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As he said to the Corinthians that the Philippians and the Macedonians in general had offered themselves first to God and then to us. And that's why they gave above and beyond their ability. Now, it's worth noting that that neither here nor in the Corinthian correspondence does Paul get into anything like talking about amounts. Uh, some would say that because Paul endorses the economic principles of the Old Testament system, ah, that must mean Paul endorses tithing. But part of the challenge is that tithing is a very specific economic system for a specific agrarian society. Um, this is not the time for that particular sermon. But just the, if you think about the Old Testament system, they included a tithe on the increase of your crops, flocks, and herds, the first fruits of your harvest and of your flocks and herds, the gleanings of your harvest left for the poor, and the bringing of burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings, as well as free will offerings at appropriate times. So to say that the Old Testament required 10% would be short of the mark. And so it's not surprising to me that the apostles never felt the need to go into any detail because they weren't they weren't trying to come up with a mechanistic system. Paul's argument here is that we should have the mind of Christ, that we should love one another self-sacrificially. And your mission, your purpose as the church of Jesus Christ is to partner with those who preach the gospel to the nations so that, so that the funds of those who work in the workplace and the time and gifts of those who preach the gospel come together in such a way that the gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth. I mean, this is... And, Part of it is that if you're really, really poor, uh, 10% of your income is very sacrificial. If you're comfortably middle class, 10% of your income might be barely noticeable. I mean, when we had two children and, and made $20,000 a year, $2,000 a year was a lot of money. But that's where, as we, that, that changed over time. And as we, as our, as we tried, as we continued on, as, our income increased, we made a point of giving a higher percentage as the income went up, so the percentage went up. Uh, but also, it's also worth thinking about the fact that nowadays, we have this strange thing called tax-deductible giving. 
I call it a strange thing because this is not something that most of human history has known anything about. So when you think about how you give, don't assume that IRS rules govern what you can give to. (laughs) IRS rules do govern how you pay your taxes, but they shouldn't govern how we give. That's where I, for, for a long time, I tended to just give gifts to tax-deductible organizations. And then realized, well, but there are also other situations in life that occur where a gift could be a very appropriate, and going through a tax-deductible organization is simply gaining a benefit for myself. And how is that self-sacrificial giving? And so I started creating a new category in my budget for, oh, what about other sorts of giving? And up until that point, I had never noticed anything else to give to. After that point, oh, there's all sorts of things. So just how what we think about will set up how we approach things. But indeed, self-sacrificial giving should not cause you to worry at all because giving with the mind of Christ, partnering in the work of the gospel, reminds us, as Paul says in verse 10, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God's own resources, his riches in glory, are more than adequate for anything you may face. We should not divorce this material from the spiritual. They're not mutually exclusive categories. His Riches in glory. God's eschatological riches are spiritual riches, but they include material resources as well. The God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills is able to provide all that you need, body and soul. And because we are pressing on toward the resurrection of the body, we know that all of our bodily needs will be taken care of. All of our bodily needs. Oh, I may die of starvation but my bodily needs will be taken care of because in death my body and my soul belong to Jesus and therefore my God will supply every need as he raises my body in glory at the final day. As Paul said at the beginning of the epistle, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But if you put together the whole flow of Philippians, you'll also see another way in which this happens. Why hasn't Paul died of starvation yet? Because of the Philippians. (laughs) One way in which God supplies all of our needs is through each other. The church should be the place where the world begins to see the eruption of the kingdom of God into this age. The restoration of creation that began at the cross should be visible in the church. It's the comment that you hear in Proverbs that I've I've never seen the righteous, the children of the righteous begging for bread. Why is that so? Well, because if something happens to the righteous who's a member of the Christian community, well then the church takes care of them. So that's, that's the way it should be. Now I realize there are times when everything blows up and that, but the Proverbs, after all, is mostly stating principles which are generally true and should be true. Occasionally, things just really aren't the way they should be. But no Christian should ever starve to death. I mean, remember the, the famine relief for Jerusalem that Paul was organizing in Macedonia and Corinth. I mean, <laughs> that's part of what he's been talking about here. And that's where the church should be a place where those who are you know, in need 
find, find help. And you see this sense of corporate identity in, in Paul's final greeting. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Greet every holy one. Greet everyone who is holy in Christ Jesus. And then he says, the brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. This is part of why we think Paul was in Rome. Apparently there are some of Caesar's household who are believers in the, in the Lord Jesus. We hear about that in Romans as well. And, but notice the distinction he makes between the brothers and the saints. It's, it's a point I've often made in terms of, we, usually when we hear the word brothers in the New Testament, we assume that it means, oh, just the Christians. But here it's clear, all the saints is what refers to the Christians. The brothers in, in the New Testament often refers to Paul's fellow preachers, the, his fellow ministers, who are the traveling presbytery who labor together with Paul in the gospel. And, and you can see, even in how Paul closes his epistle, how Christ-centered he is. He does not simply say, yours truly, but the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May our speech and behavior be characterized by the mind of Christ as we humble ourselves and take up our cross, as we press on towards the resurrection because Jesus Christ has taken hold of us. Let's pray. O oh Lord our God, may we have the mind of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. May we have that mind that seeks not our own interests but the interests of others. May we have that mind that considers all things as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord, that we may press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus, that we may hold true to what we have attained. Help us, Lord, to, to have the mind of Christ, to have that comfort in love, to have that that affection and sympathy one for another, that we, might, that we might see your Son sitting at your right hand as the one who, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that you have exalted him. You have bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory, our Heavenly Father. And so we rejoice before you because you have brought all this to pass. You have, you have continued to send forth your gospel even to the, the ends of the earth here in northern Indiana. That as, and as you continue to send forth your gospel, may we, may we preach Christ not from envy and rivalry, but from goodwill that we might show forth the glory of Jesus, that we might see day by day, week by week, month by month, the gospel of Jesus growing and flourishing in our lives and in the lives of those around us, that we might bear witness to Jesus in the way that we live in our in our workplaces, the way that we live in our neighborhoods, the way that we live in our homes and communities. May we show forth Christ and Him crucified in the way that we walk and humble ourselves before you and before one another, that for us to live is Christ, to die is gain, that we might 
progress in faith, hope, and love until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for your, your, your church. I pray for your people, both here and indeed throughout all the world, that, that we might, that our love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to your glory and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.